The Guardian. No other virus has had the same devastating impact on humankind in recent times as HIV. Since it emerged into our consciousness in the early 1980s, HIV-AIDS has killed an estimated 33 million people. Right now, more than 38 million patients around the world live with the virus. And so far, only two patients have ever been cured or declared completely virus-free for a sustained period once infected. The first, known as the Berlin patient, Timothy Ray Brown, sadly died last month from cancer. The second, known as the London patient, was successfully treated by Professor Ravi Gupta. Today, a new virus is changing the course of world history. So what are the insights of our ongoing journey to develop treatments for HIV, which can be used in understanding COVID-19? Back in 1984, President Reagan, his administration said that there would be an HIV vaccine within two years of the AIDS epidemic unfolding. And uh, this, of course, is a very similar situation where the leaders are compelled or pressured to tell everyone there's going to be a vaccine, whereas in fact, the real inroads are going to be made or were made for HIV through antiviral medication. I'm Sarah Bosley, health editor of The Guardian. Welcome to Science Weekly. Okay, my name is Professor Ravi Gupta, um, and I am Professor of Clinical Microbiology at the University of Cambridge, uh, and I work at the Cambridge Institute of Therapeutic Immunology and Infectious Diseases. Hi, Ravi, it's Sarah here. Could you tell us a little bit about the HIV virus to begin with and what it actually does to an individual once they're infected? So the HIV virus is a particular form of viral pathogen in that it has a genetic code that's made up of RNA. And because it's RNA, the virus then has to make that into DNA in order for it to use uh, our own machinery to make copies of itself. So that's why it's called a vet retrovirus in that it starts with almost the wrong form of genetic code. It needs to then translate it into a, a readable code and, and that requires a reverse process, hence the term retrovirus. And once the virus is in the cell, it then proceeds to enter the, the nucleus of the cell, which is where your genetic material is uh, that encodes our, our genomes. And uh, the virus very cleverly uh, performs an integration step, which means it becomes part of our DNA, uh, and this is a permanent process. That's why HIV can essentially infect you for the, the whole of your lifetime, because it's sitting in these cells, and it goes to sleep on many occasions and is reactivated um, due to various different stimuli um, that you encounter. So could you tell us a little bit about how you began to work on the virus? I was interested uh, when I was a teenager really in, in, in biology and the fascinating thing about HIV was how it crossed so many disciplines from sociology through to economics, through to fundamental biology, through to vaccines and immunology. So it was really a, a, a wonderful sort of topic to be interested in. Fortunately, I think when I started getting interested in HIV, it was the late 90s and I think the early stigma attached to the disease in terms of uh, being gay or, or straight was kind of uh, improving and it was everybody's problem and a global threat so I think that the recognition of this disease as something that affected all of society was there. 
So it was a very positive time in many ways. The activism had kicked in to get treatment out uh, to individuals in developing countries. And the thing that took my interest really early was the fact that we were starting just then in the early 2000s to use antiretroviral therapy in Africa and Asia, whereas to date, uh, up until then, uh, the drugs were deemed too expensive to be used. So my worry was that we were going to use a public health approach and mass treat people with these drugs against a virus which we knew was very mutagenic and could mutate very rapidly to escape. So that's what I focused my early work on. And you came to work with Adam Castellejo, who became known as the London patient. Could you tell us the story of your relationship with Adam, how it all began? So in sort of 2015, uh, some clinical colleagues of mine mentioned that there was a patient who had HIV who really needed a transplant using donor tissue of bone marrow from another patient because his lymphoma was so bad that uh, he would die otherwise. And the lymphoma doctors had been looking for a donor that matched our patient not only in terms of tissue type, but also uh, having this mutation called Delta 32 that is protective against HIV. And we knew from a study 10 years ago uh, where the Berlin patient, is, as he's known, was cured from HIV by having a stem cell transplant from another donor that had this mutation that protected his cells. And so we thought we would try and replicate this because it had been a decade since this happened. We wondered really whether this really was a fluke or whether there was anything in it. So we, we decided we would, we would um, try this with Adam. And was Adam quite up for that? Did he, was he, because this was experimental treatment, of course. Yes, it was a, it was a difficult time for him because, of course, he had been told um, that he had a fatal disease. He was told that the lymphoma was not responding to chemotherapy and that um, uh, on occasion, you know, doctors were quite negative and that uh, they thought he would die. Um, and a transplant wasn't discussed as openly as one might have expected because it's a highly risky procedure, especially in HIV. And of course, he was in a very negative place in terms of his outlook. Obviously, he fought, wanted to fight this lymphoma, um, but um, but really uh, was was um, uh, counting his chances really. And so the, the the possibility of a cure from HIV was obviously less less important to him because we knew, he knew that he could just take antiretrovirals to control that. We got to know each other quite well during the whole transplant procedure because this was, you know, took time to prepare him. We were talking regularly, we were doing tests on him pre-transplant to check the virus was actually treatable by this transplant, looking at the sequence of the virus, making sure he was safe as it were. And then of course there was the transplants and then the watching and waiting afterwards, which, you know, there was a lot of anxiety there because we were very excited about the fact that this may be leading to a potential remission. And we then had to decide after uh, 16 months uh, to stop his antiretrovirals and watch and wait. And of course, that was a really big stepping stone, a big milestone, uh, because telling an HIV patient that they need to stop antiretrovirals is something they never thought they would hear. And, you know, uh, every patient is told to never miss a dose. And this took time for Adam to digest and to take the plunge, as it were. So he took the plunge in September of 2017. And after that, we had to monitor him very regularly uh, with blood tests. Uh, it was usually every two weeks. And of course, before the result came back, it was it was really nerve wracking. And, and it was uh, uh, exciting when when we found out he was negative on the on the, the regular blood test. Of course, we had to do a number of other 
more sophisticated tests in the laboratory to see whether there was HIV in his cells. And then the other thing, of course, was that we were unable to get blood after a while from him because he'd had so many uh, blood tests, his veins were difficult to access. And so this is where uh, my uh, colleague, uh, Helen Lee, who, who runs a company, Diagnostics of the Real World, where they had this Samba machine that could test finger prick blood uh, for HIV. Um, uh, we, we then started using that uh, platform to do finger prick blood tests on him uh, to avoid having to use needles. And, and that was very, very useful uh, in terms of getting a negative result every two weeks. It went on for 18 months before we were able to report the results. And all of these test results came back negative. So if he is said to be cured now, what do you mean by a cure? What, what, what actually do people mean by a cure in this context? It's a little bit like cancer because, of course, once you've had uh, a diagnosis of cancer and a treatment, you then are labelled as having uh, or being disease-free uh, and in remission because, of course, you don't know when the cancer is going to come back. And in the same way with HIV, we don't know if the virus is going to come back uh, and we can look for HIV in the body and not find it. But that, of course, is uh, is all about the limits of our testing abilities. So. Uh, we use the word remission after the first 18 months because usually if you stop uh, HIV drugs in a person infected with HIV, the virus will come back within usually four weeks, and so that's one month. So to go 18 months without any sign of infection um, was uh, was remarkable at the time, and we reported it in Nature in 2019. Mm. Um, but, but at that stage, we were still being relatively cautious, and we called it a remission. But this year, uh, we... Did, we had uh, done far more testing. We'd done tissue testing from uh, samples from the gut, from um, semen, from uh, the fluid around his brain, and uh, found absolutely no evidence of live virus. So we uh, we called this a cure at 30 months after interrupting his um, antiviral treatments. How do you feel personally about the HIV virus? Do you think of it as an enemy or can you be completely dispassionate about it as a scientist? Well, in many ways, it is an incredibly interesting and wonderful organism and I'm in huge admiration for this thing. It has only around 10 different proteins. And if you compare that to the thousands that we have, it's incredible that this thing can completely evade all of our defences. We have many defences, innate, adaptive, we have T-cells, B-cells, uh, lots of different types of defence proteins. And yet this thing with uh, with only 10 of its own proteins has to replicate itself and, and also evade everything we can throw at it after millions of years of our own evolution. So it is remarkable, I think, uh, but also obviously a devastating disease that we need to do something about. Yes, absolutely. And what about SARS-CoV-2? Do you have the same feeling about that one? I think it's growing on me. I think, of course, like everybody, it's uh, it's a, there is a fear factor at the moment of just how terrible things may get, and not only in terms of the immediate morbidity mortality, but this uh, ongoing inflammation and multi-organ dysfunction that you may be seeing in some patients. It's really worrying to see the scope of that and how people with long COVID uh, may be impacted in the longer term. And so at the moment, it's uh, more a sort of worried about this virus stage rather than admiration as, as we had for, for HIV. Uh, I, I think, of course, uh, SARS-CoV-2 has really hit many nails on the head in terms of what, what a virus needed to really cause um, uh, humanity 
maximum pain and, and, and SARS-CoV-2 has pretty much ticked all the boxes. It's actually stopped the world in a way that the HIV virus didn't, hasn't it? That's right. And that's that's because of its respiratory spread. Uh, uh, of course, this makes it infectious to everybody uh, uh, in a more uh, dangerous way because, of course, the fact that many so many people are asymptomatic and the infectiousness starts very early on and once you've been infected with the virus so you can pass it on relatively quickly. These are things that make the virus impossible in many ways to control effectively. And are you in some way working on COVID-19 yourself now? Yes, I think uh, as many infectious diseases clinicians, we thought this is a new disease. It was terrifying at the time and we had, all of us had some kind of skill to contribute uh, from my, our own group uh, with all this experience in HIV Really, the, the key contribution we've made so far is in testing because a, we're, we were able to implement a rapid point of care uh, PCR-like test in, here in the hospital at Addenbrooke's after a, a very quick implementation science uh, evaluation study on the Samba 2 platform, which incidentally was developed initially for use in Africa to monitor HIV treatment. The SAMBA 2 machine, it's, it stands for Simple Amplification-Based Assay, uh, and this is essentially a test for genetic material of um, pathogens such as viruses like HIV or coronavirus. And so what it does, it takes a small amount of sample, whether it's blood or a, a sample of a swab, and it um, amplifies uh, whatever genetic material of the virus is there. It make, makes huge numbers of copies of that virus, and then it has a detection system for signaling when the machine finds the genetic material. And that's a readout, a, a little colour strip on the machine. So that only takes an hour and a half from sample going into result out. So these, in fact, are the rapid tests that are being used in hospitals, certainly some hospitals, in Cambridge in particular. That's right. There are around 10 or 20 hospitals in the UK using it at the moment, and that's set to increase to over 100 in the next few weeks. And it's a, a, a lovely sort of story that this machine that was designed for Africa, where viral load monitoring is, is not available for many people. Uh, and this is the machine developed for that setting that's now being used in all our hospitals to test the coronavirus. In the US, Dr. Anthony Fauci is leading the response to COVID-19. Like you, he's an HIV biologist by training. What is it specifically about this background that provides a useful skill set, do you think, for thinking about COVID-19? I think it goes back to the fact that this is a disease that can't be tackled from any particular angle alone. It really needs a concerted uh, global approach in, in order to achieve control. And I think because HIV was that kind of disease, it attracted the kinds of people who thought about pathogens or virology in a broader sense and of course this uh, was a virus that was impossible to cure and so we were used to having a pathogen that really was um, outsmarting all of our technology and to develop multi-pronged approaches and to think more globally about how we could study and uh, control this this new virus. And I suppose beyond the biology of the viruses, there are also similarities in the way that they play on human vulnerabilities, such as our social behaviour and the way that uh, the political divides, I suppose, in amongst those who are trying to, to deal with them. That's absolutely right. And I think uh, this has been one of the uh, potential drivers for dissemination of the virus in 
in communities that had been marginalized potentially uh, or, or who could not access testing and maybe in the future they will find it difficult to access treatments when they become available or even vaccines. So SARS-CoV-2 certainly has amplified its, uh, itself through uh, inequalities and social conditions driven in part by poverty and, and the way we live. So it hasn't been possible, in spite of decades of looking for it, to find a vaccine against HIV so far. What are the chances with the coronavirus? Do you think um, we will get one or are treatments actually going to be the most important tool? We can only speculate at the moment. The problems with HIV vaccines were manifold. One of, the, one of them was the diversity of the virus caused by um, higher rates of mutation. So making a vaccine that was going to work worldwide was uh, always going to be difficult, but also getting good levels of our patrolling uh, immune cells into the places where HIV infects individuals um, uh, was obviously one of the challenges and obviously delivery and maintenance of high levels of uh, protective uh, cells and antibodies is, is a further challenge. And in the same way, we may come slightly unstuck with uh, SARS coronavirus vaccines because you have to get good levels of your immune cells at the mucosal surfaces, where, such as your nose, throat, where infection may um, take hold. Uh, so that's the first challenge. Of course, then you have to make sure that those antibodies or protective cells stay there for extended periods of time. Uh, and of course, we can see that during natural infections uh, with seasonal viruses or cold viruses, we get them again and again. And that doesn't really bode well, in my view, for a sustained uh, protection from a coronavirus vaccine, no matter what um, scientists around the world may say. I think we are working against the odds to find a vaccine that gives prolonged protection. And we may need multiple doses to achieve good levels of protection. So what about treatments? Is, is that a perhaps more optimistic road? I use the analogy of HIV here because back in 1984, President Reagan's administration said that there would be an HIV vaccine within two years of the AIDS epidemic unfolding. And uh, this, of course, is a very similar situation where the leaders uh, are compelled or pressured to tell everyone there's going to be a vaccine, whereas in fact, the real, con the real inroads are going to be made or were made for HIV through antiviral medication. And so what I've been disappointed about is that we haven't had the same pressure for drug development or repurposing of existing drugs to address uh, the SARS-CoV-2 challenge. And if we had good drugs, um, uh, we would be in a very different place right now. Uh, a good example is hepatitis C virus, where we now have over 20 drugs that were developed, albeit over a decade, uh, but with with a serious drug development and, and, and infrastructure and investment because there was money to be made out of hep C treatment. And if we just put those incentives in place for drug companies and for individuals or, or funding agencies, we might derive really great benefits. Thank you very much, Ravi. Thank you very much. That's all for today. Thanks again to Professor Ravi Gupta. From all of us here at Science Weekly, Stay safe and we'll see you soon. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.